Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi there, you're listening to Brainwaves on 3CR, 8.55am, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Today we are acknowledging Veterans Health Week. It's running all this week. It is a great opportunity for current and ex-service men and women to acknowledge their own health and find new strategies to maintain and improve their health and well-being. Um, so for today, we are going to be talking to Daryl, who is an ex-serviceman. He was an apprentice musician in the army in the early 1970s, and he has a living experience of PTSD based on his experience. Um, just a warning, today's show does contain mentions of PTSD, trauma, and sexual abuse. If you do require any support, feel free to contact Helpline one three hundred one 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 five hundred. Um. So, what inspired you to join the army at such a young age? Um. I think by the age of fifteen, I'd already been um participating in a lot of music programs, uh, many of which were run by uh, schoolmasters, uh, music masters, headmasters, and the likes who. Uh, were veterans themselves from the First and Second Great Wars. And I met, I don't know, just thinking back, the, uh, the, the type of music and the type of uh, perspective on music that they had was, uh, I suppose, a little more regimented than um, you know, the rest of the, the 60s ilk as, as that uh, progressed. And um, I'd, I'd always been just an avid drummer from, you know, as soon as I could crawl, uh, my parents said that I would reach for spoons and sticks and pots and pans and, you know, would fashion, uh, you know, different uh, uh, sort of drum-like saucepans of variable sizes and types and, and, and just, you know, be totally ensconced in rhythm. Um, I suppose all of those things linked together and the fact that uh, the, um, the the music um, studies that I that I was doing outside of in those days primary school were um, also sort of quite regimented. Um, many many of the uh, masters, for example, of the Adelaide College of Music were veterans, yeah. and uh, the uh, the pipe band that uh, I was a young member of was. Um, Pipe majored by uh, one of the original rats of Trabook, um, mm. dear old Henry Emery, and um, he taught me pipes and drums as a uh, a young lad of you know nine or ten. Um, mm. and as as time progressed, and my music uh, tastes you know incorporated things as outrageous as say the Masters Apprentices and Led Zeppelin and Creedence Clearwater and. You know, Emerson Lake and Palmer, all the other groovers of the '60s. Um, I incorporated that into my my, my sort of tool set as well. Yeah. And uh, by the time I got to to um, high school, I started to realise that there was this big horrible thing happening on the other side of the world called the Vietnam War. Yeah. 
and um, that that scared me somewhat because I came from a a Christian background, and I didn't feel that uh, I wanted to be involved in this um, thing called conscription. If and who, who who knew how long that was going to last at the time, mm. uh, and 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 object in any manner. Um, another uh, musician whom was a colleague um, suggested to me one night after band practice um, that uh, the the defence force had a music. Um, uh, department, and that uh, primarily they played music. I said, "Oh, that can't be. They must, you know, they must play music during the day and and do other uh, duties as well." They said, "No, primarily they're musicians and stretcher bearers and first responder medics and uh, a number of other things in in um, in wartime and in peacetime. They're basically a, a PR machine and um, involved with uh, with protocols and you know." Uh, vice regal events and that sort of yeah. uh, plus in plus internal uh, military uh, tasks and I, I thought that sounded quite romantic <laughs> as a thirteen or fourteen year old uh, listening to uh, school friends say how that they were going to get out of the draft yeah and I, I remember coming to school one day and said I think I've worked this out I think in my heart of hearts I can. Uh, join the army as a musician and be called upon for, you know, other, you know, ambulance-like duties, which was historically uh, what a, a musician did uh, in that era, um, post-war up until the late 60s, early 70s. That was still, um, you know, in their job description. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, rather than finish my music studies at, at conservatorium level, I'll do this, and I can always go back to that. Yeah. And so I, I think that's how I come to the the conclusion at the wise old age of fifteen that um, um, this would fulfil any responsibilities called upon. You know, people of my era who were obsessed with uh, what was happening in in Vietnam and Cambodia, and um, it could uh, it could be a twin edged sword. Um, you know, in as much as I would receive training and um, and be paid for the training as a young um, trainee, and mm. uh, take it from there. Uh, it was originally uh, a signing on um, process of uh, eight years, and as a fifteen-year-old uh, trying to envisage what twenty-three years old is like was it was. Fairly incomprehensible. I just thought that was a long way away, yeah. and um, it went went on our on the on the merry course of um, psychological, physical, psychometric, uh, musical vetting from um, uh, the recruiting people in Adelaide. Right. So it sounded like a match made in heaven, but in fact the recruiting sa- process yeah. was quite <laughs> arduous. Would you say? Uh, no, I, I, I breezed through it. I found it uh, very, um, you know, very, you know, you know, obvious what the next question was. And, you aced and it. How to answer it? And you were born for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, um, what is involved with being in an army band? Um, do you still have to do basic training? Um, Yes, of course. Every uh, soldier, everyone that wears um, 
uh, a Defence Force uniform um, has to do what are known as all core, uh, you know, prerequisites. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a dental technician or a truck driver or a, a, a musician. Um, you still have to uh, fulfil um, a certain, you know, physical uh, tests and uh, military-based, you know, weapons and tactical compass reading um, tests uh, and objectives, of course, uh, as a as an apprentice, as opposed to a recruit who would take that in his stride uh, at a a later age, seventeen, nineteen, yeah. would be would have been the norm. Uh, they they did their uh, basic training at uh, one of the then recruit training battalions. We had three back in the, the era of the Vietnam War. Um, one still exists. The primary one is the first recruit training battalion in Wagga Wagga in, a, in Kapuka. We also had the second and third recruit training battalions. I think they were in Puckapunyal and Singleton, um, which were uh, uh, dismantled uh, during the mid seventies, as it became apparent uh, under the Whitlam era that um, conscription and uh, support for the Vietnam War and the fact, you know, that it had come to a, an ugly head anyhow. Um, whereas, uh, as fifteen-year-old uh, apprentices, we would. Um, have more of a, a school-type itinerary or program, and um, our our music uh, schooling, our military schooling, um, our completing our secondary education schooling, and you know character guidance and uh, all the other things that go to um, uh, making a holistic apprentice, tradesman, or musician um, would be incorporated. Um, over you know forty minute periods, and we might have done our uh, uh, original boot camp four to six weeks of basic training, part of uh, what they do at the recruit school, which was at the time I think twelve or sixteen weeks. We would do that over a two year period, and uh, we would also do a lot of the uh, the subject matter for promotion to junior NCO uh, when we were. 15 and 16 and 17. So we would uh, graduate from the Army Apprentices School with a lot more uh, grounding and uh, skill sets than, say, um, a fresh recruit of the same age who'd had maybe 10 or 12 weeks of basic training and, of course, no no trade or, or, or um, um, musical training in our case. Um, they they were of a less uh, specialist um, um, ilk uh, compared yeah. to uh, the, uh, the the apprentice school so, system, which is long gone, of course. Yeah. As uh, an apprentice musician in the Army in the early 1970s, are you comfortable telling us briefly about the abuse you experienced there? I am these days. Um, it's, um, it, it, it's all pretty much settled. Um, so that I don't become too triggered talking about um, about um, uh, those early days. Um, I've looked back at it and thought, how could have it happened? Um, you know, we were all on the same team. Um, but uh, my first uh, sort of perception of of this uh, place called uh, Balcom, uh, where the Army Apprentices School uh, had been set up. 
uh, in the late 40s through to the mid 80s or early mid 80s and 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 it virtually fell apart because it was it was built by the US Marine Corps after the Battle of Guadalcanal and it was just basically a heap of old tin sheds that was meant to last maybe five or six years but the army kept putting coats of paint on it and new lino and that sort of stuff until it became obvious that it was untenable. Um, the first thing I noticed um, being uh, driven from Victoria Barracks where my small class of of 12 uh, candidates from all around Australia were um, mustered to uh, uh, move uh, en masse the 37 or 8 miles south uh, down the Nepean Highway to what was Balcom. Um, first observation uh, coming onto this camp was that um, it looked like something akin to Hogan's Heroes or, or The Great Escape, but nobody seemed to have any any sort of animation on their face. Everyone seemed to be just walking around uh, like robots or angry, and we thought, well, this is a bit strange. Um, and it just seemed to be, you know, if you smile or you appeared happy, um, you, life was being too easy or something. So um, I think a lot of it was armour plating from um, the uh, the young different classes of apprentices that, you know, we had that initial, um, you know, observation thereof. It didn't help also that I came from South Australia. I was a half-year intake, which was a very small intake, as opposed to the full-year intakes, which were... 10, 20 times larger than ours, so some 200, and incorporated all trades from, in those days, blacksmithing to carpentry to um, uh, plumbing, uh, right up to the top end of um, electronics trades, depending yeah. on the on the uh, the psychometric number that that particular uh, potential apprentice would have uh, received in his uh, one of the tests. Uh, pre-enlistment um, it it didn't help that uh, we were always looked upon as uh, like chocolate soldiers or weaker soldiers because of the, the type of work that we did compared to the type of work they were being trained to do you know, they might have gone into the into the jungles of Cambodia and had to repair tanks that had been broken down under fire where you know not too many of them knew that Musicians had a dual role of of um, stretcher bearing or, or combat medicking, uh, but that was becoming uh, a by and by course of events as as training and, and medicine um, um, standards changed, uh, and uh, that had that was actually being sort of dropped from um, bandsman um, uh, primary role as I was undertaking uh, my my initial training. But uh, in 1972, uh, our then Premier, Don Dunstan, had just decriminalised, or at the forefront of the decriminalisation of homosexuality. Um, I had no defined sexuality. I was a prepubescent 15-year-old, but I knew that I liked girls. And uh, I turned up there, I was identified as a, as a weak um, um, South Australian uh, from the Pufta state because that's what it had been determined and this place seemed to be extraordinarily homophobic and uh, you know summarily uh, was identified and picked on um, 
with that label. Um, I, I couldn't understand why. Um, I would ask questions, and of course that's the last thing you do, is ask questions. You keep your mouth shut and and uh, keep a low profile in uh, in places like that. Um, it, it wasn't long, in fact, it was a, a matter of hours before uh, I was, you know, threatened with nothing I ever do will be good enough. Um, my arms will never be high enough on marching practice if there's any extra KP or kitchen duties uh, doled out. That'll be me. If there's extra, any extra regimental duties, that'll be me also. So I, I was marked and under the pump from very uh, early onset um, at the place. Having to then uh, be uh, billeted in with um, these um, six-month senior trades apprentices who were already suffering, um, you know, the the typical um, class identity regime of being the lesser class. They were a junior class to a number of classes above them. They were already quite, uh, you know, traumatised and radar out and, and doing nothing that would uh, would bring, um, you know, any consequences harm to themselves to yeah. the best of their ability. Mm. Uh, and, of course, we became their kicking bags because, um, you know, we were the lowest of the low, uh, especially if, for example, I just come from a, a high school where I was, you know, the, the, the basically the prefect of the, uh, of the percussion section of our uh, uh, Windbrass String and Percussion Orchestra. I'd had um, some seven or eight years' experience in a military marching band where I was the captain of the Adelaide College of Music marching band, which uh, meant I had responsibility for some 40 or 50 drummers. And uh, I, I was also um, um, a keen piper and drummer in the Adelaide Highland Pipe Band. So I'd had, by that stage, um, you know, reasonable um, standing and perspective of what I could and couldn't do, and and here I was being told I was the lowest of low. I could do nothing, and um, but oh, also being identified as somebody a bit different. I mean, I turned up with you know, shoulder-length hair and a metallic purple flared suit that I wore to my grandmother's funeral only you know months earlier. I suppose in hindsight, I I should have had a haircut and worn something a little uh, less outrageous, um, but. That and, seemed quite, yeah. you know, um, appropriate to me, wearing well, a suit. You can't make um, excuses for, the for their behaviour anyway, I don't think. You know, you can't make excuses for yourself and, and how you were... I think there's nothing wrong with however you want to dress. And I just think it's so unfortunate. Um, yeah. You, you know, I, I wonder I, to myself... I look back in hindsight, yeah. How many were affected like this, you know? Was it rampant, do you um, think? Um, I've got a photograph of a unit that I was in, and that unit was 34 members. And I look at it, and I know five of them were raped. Wow. Uh, that's a fairly high. That's a fairly high number. You know, yeah. that's a, you know, that's you know something in the order of 15 percent. Mm. Um, and I've only found uh, that picture was taken in 1982, and I had no idea. Um, Nobody talked about these things. Yeah. Uh, you were uh, once once they had uh, they they dished out 
whatever uh, punishment or or bullying or bastardisation, uh, whatever whatever had uh, been uh, perpetrated upon you, you were given a very succinct warning that this will go no further. If it does, there will be further ramifications. You will say nothing for fear of mm. further reprisals. And there were further reprisals. Yeah. Um, I, I tried to start to... Um, the first thing I did was I was I was near the completion of my young Christian endeavour um, um, training to be baptised in a Protestant church in the Church of Christ back in Adelaide. And um, I thought, well, I should gain some respite by speaking to a military padre. And the gentleman that uh, was our padre had been uh, a, a military musician. Um, his name was Denby Holmes. He was a wonderful, uh, gentle soul. And you would go and seek respite in his cha- chaplain's office after hours, and you would talk about you know, his passion for gliding or his passion for music or you know how things were going. And you try not to talk about what was happening up in the barrack box. But they must have tweaked. You know, why would a young 15-year-old lad be up there talking with the padre instead of with his mates up at the rec? Centre playing billiards or darts or, or polishing his boots or you know mm. doing anything else that uh, was a requirement on barracks in a normal sort of day to day running basis. So mm. I'm sure they suspected things, but unless you mm. actually overtly had the guts to come out and say I have been X Y or Z, um, and you were scared to do that anyhow, mm. you you did nothing. Although I I did try to make um, make mention to one of my uh, platoon sergeants who were there very rarely, but when he was there, that pretty bad stuff was happening. And for some strange reason, I don't know why, but that seemed to have got back to the uh, the group of, um, of, of villains that thought this was good fun. And the regimental laundry operator, whom had already compromised me as well, uh, and had warned me not to uh, be noisy. Um, and I'd been summarily um, sentenced um, in September, only a few months into my training, to death. Barracks. Most most of the staff lived off barracks. There was nobody there. It was like ten little Indians after after dark. There was maybe three or four grown-ups. On base, looking after five or six hundred apprentices, the uh, the responsibility of apprentices had been doled out in a in an unofficial rank scenario, uh, whereby um, uh, valid candidates or appropriate candidates were given two or three stripes, depending on how long they'd been there, and they would either be section corporals or platoon sergeants or company sergeant majors. Um, and some of those corporals were not very nice people. A lot were. Um, some, for some reason, considered that the uh, the induction of power upon themselves meant that it was an absolute power and that uh, they could do anything that they wanted to. And um, they would get away with it to a certain extent. You just knew which bullies to steer clear of if you physically and possibly could. Yeah, I'm... I'm so sorry for what you've been through. It's shocking and and criminal and 
Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, sure. There's so much more we'd like to ask you, but we'll have to end it on this question. Um, our society is becoming more proactive in responding to abuse. Uh, do you think the Defence Force is keeping pace with these changes or lagging behind? I would only be very subjective um, in my, my, my answer. I think a lot has been done in recent times, uh, some of which was cause and effect of the Royal Commission. Uh, I did find, however, pre the Royal Commission, when I gave, found, finally found the guts to, to talk about what I'd been through, that the Australian Defence Force investigation services were uh, were absolutely uh, marvellous with with the manner in which they handled uh, the information and where that information went. I think now there's enough. There's been enough people that have uh, given them, you know, hotspot sort of um, data to uh, make sense of it. Um, by default, somebody had told me, and they shouldn't have, that um, after I'd stated, I thought I was protecting 99% of the good people in the army. Uh, somebody actually said to me, you were actually protecting about 70%. He said, there's about 30% of them are crooks. And he, he identified the particular ranks uh, at which um, the army had targeted because it was known that uh, people were just running a market uh, at those particular ranks. Um, I think there's been enough bud nipping and enough people showing the back door and enough um, understanding at, uh, you know, at the highest level within the military now uh, to make soldiers aware of their rights and uh, freely challenge um, through uh, instruments the likes of the Fairgo hotline that they can ring and uh, with a certain amount of anonymity um, explain uh, what they have suffered or what they think is is a wrong. Uh, and I know that particular agency is uh, very intimately involved with the Judge Advocate General's office and um, the last thing um, the military want is um, is a stain on the good people. And uh, there's a heck of a lot of good people in the military that do a, a wonderful job. Uh, why should it be um, messed up by, you know, an unreasonable minority that seems to be coming... Uh, a, uh, they're more and more in the minority now. Mm. And so, so mm. far as, so far as uh, relative to today's society is concerned, the, the military is always a conservative place and a regimental uh, environment. And... Um, runs under a, a, a different series of, um, of values than um, you know the civilian world does. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, every soldier, sailor, airman, airwoman has the right to uh, work in their workplace um, a, a, and enjoy it and, and feel supported. And uh, I think that's one of the mantras that uh, um, they, they work by. Uh, there's a lot more proactivity. There's a lot more people prepared to um, um, talk about and identify, you know, shortcomings. That certainly wasn't the case back in the old days. Well, thank you so much for being well, one you. of those brave people that that are speaking out and helping change change society in all. So. Thank you so much for being on our show. I'm so sorry we didn't have longer to hear more of your story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. 
Okay, so that's all we have time for on Brainwaves today. You can find more episodes of our show on our website, brainwaves.org.au, on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and on iTunes. We'll be back next Wednesday for a new episode at 5pm. Stay tuned for Renegade Economists. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.